Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your glorious word, your eternal truth. Lord, this morning as your Son, our Savior, prayed, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, this morning we pray that we'd be attentive to the authority of Scripture. You would grant me the grace to proclaim your truth and the power of the Spirit. That your people would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For these things we pray in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. If you're visiting with us, uh, we're glad to have you with us. Welcome on behalf of everyone here. Um, we are, are working our way through the, the book of Romans, Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, a church made up of both Jews and Gentiles, those that were brought to the place of, of saving faith in the one and only Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pick up today where we left off, and that is chapter 10. If you would grab your Bible and please stand as we will look together at verses 1 through 10. Romans 10, verses 1 through 10. And God's word reads, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them context, unbelieving Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone. Who believes? For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth. And in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. What does it mean to believe? That's the question for this morning. What does it mean to believe? Can a person can a person be sincere about God? Sincere about orthodoxy, sincere about liturgy, sincere about tradition, and be sincerely lost? The answer is yes. Now, before we get into that, 
I want us to remember the overarching theme of Paul's epistle, his letter to the church at Rome, which takes us back to chapter 1 and verse 16, and you can just listen to this. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the theme of this epistle. Now, for a little more than a year, we've been studying the reality and the results of the gospel. Okay, reality is that many more who've been exposed to the truth don't believe compared to those who do. I mean, Jesus said in his ministry, there's a broad way and there's a narrow way. Many go in in the broad way. Very few are they that go in through the narrow gate. Uh, The result is that many who were not seeking righteousness according to his mercy actually attained it. That's mercy, that's grace. Now, most of the Jews who were given the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the promises, the worship, didn't believe. They believed in the covenants. They believed in the promises. They believed in the worships, in the worship, but they really didn't believe. Whereas God intervened upon an immeasurable number of those who were not seeking God, Gentiles, granting them the mercy to obtain a righteousness that is outside of themselves through faith. We've been looking at this for a number of weeks. Now, we've worked through some hard but true realities of divine election and divine reprobation. Amen? Hard to understand? No. Not at all. Hard to accept? Perhaps. That's our problem, not God's. The God who saves is indeed determined to save those he has predetermined to save. Fact. Romans 9 is a portion of scripture often received with antagonistic opposition. We've looked at that. Many believers in our day are culturally affected by a kind of socialistic fairness mentality, right? Uh, Attempting to hold God accountable to some man-made fairness doctrine. We've looked at that. As though God the creator is somehow accountable to his finite fallen creatures, But if we wanted God to be fair, if we asked God to be fair, that is a very, very dangerous request. Because if God were fair in his justice, we all would be going to hell. God is more than fair. He is just, he is loving, and he is merciful. That is why we're here. Because of this mercy. God says in chapter 9 and verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Determined by him alone. 
Now, the outcome of divine election, the outcome of divine reprobation, is that those who were not seeking God, Gentiles in this context, attained righteousness according to God's mercy alone. Whereas those who thought themselves to be righteous, those who thought themselves to be the most orthodox, the most religious, failed to attain the righteousness required to get to heaven. Oh, but they believed all the stuff. But they didn't believe. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul is answering the question, but what about Israel, who had all those promises? What about them? They don't believe. They said they believe, but they truly don't believe. They rejected Messiah. What about Israel? Paul's first answer is that ultimately... It has to do with God's sovereignty. The fact of the matter is he's chosen to save some while he passes over others. That's the eternal sovereign decree of God. That's the first part of his answer. But he knows hands are in the air. Hands are in the air, and he's saying, wait a minute, that's not fair. So he spends a whole chapter explaining why it's not only fair, but incredibly merciful. That was chapter 9. At the end of chapter 9, he moves to the second part of his answer to the question, and that is man's responsibility. Israel's responsibility is the immediate context, with reference to belief in the Messiah Jesus, the very cornerstone of God's kingdom. He is the cornerstone of the faith. Israel is a, is a whole stumbled over over grace. They tripped over God's Messiah. If you notice, back in chapter 9 and verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Israel tripped over grace. Israel tripped over God's Savior. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Yet in his mercy, this church at Rome, recipients of this particular letter, there are both Jews saved by grace along with Gentiles saved by grace that make up this particular church to whom he's addressing through this letter. The majority of Jews, however, have not believed, and that's Paul's concern, okay? That's his concern. No one is a more firm believer of unconditional election than Paul. Nevertheless, this morning we see once again the heart of Paul. He understands God's sovereign rule and reign, but he hasn't become a hyper-Calvinist who sees no need for evangelism. He's maintained a heart of compassion for the lost. For those who are deceived, we can learn much from this brother, amen? Yes, we believe in the sovereignty of God, absolutely, hopefully without doubt. Nevertheless, may we share the compassion of Paul with regard for the lost. Notice, verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Brothers, notice, 
Adelphoi, it's a term of endearment. It's kind of like beloved, beloved of the Lord. He's indicating his affection for the saints at the church in Rome. He says to them, dear brothers, my heart's desire. Desire means to delight in. It means to delight in with a certain kind of pleasure in, in a longing for something that is absent, in a longing for something that doesn't exist. And it's revealed, notice, through his deepest, innermost supplications. My prayer to God is it for them that they may be saved. That is his interest in their salvation. That's his concern, that's his heart, that's his prayer. All the while knowing the sovereign decrees of God. And notice he continues in verse 2. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to what? To knowledge. They have zeal. Oh, they're fired up about God. They're zealous. Now, Paul, no doubt, seems to be alluding to his own conduct in former days, of former days. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he's saying, I know something of this zeal. (laughs) I know with certainty what this is about. So Paul speaks with the Pharisee and the legalist in mind here. This is in his mind's eye. And he's remembering his own experience as one. A Pharisee. And he's trying to communicate that that road leads to nowhere. Actually, it leads to somewhere, but nowhere good. (laughs) This is a kind of zeal that has to do with God as its object, albeit out of great, great ignorance. Actually, foolishness and folly. Paul makes it clear that sincerity and intensity in religion and orthodoxy and doctrine cannot save you. Who is more zealous about doctrine than the Pharisees? About orthodoxy. So their their enthusiasm and their desire to live according to God's will was not based on proper understanding. It was, it was based on some kind of knowledge, but the wrong kind of knowledge. Insufficient knowledge. You know, this is not only a clear indictment to the religious Jews then, beloved, but also of all kinds of religious, zealous people to this very day, throughout time. You think about the false doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They are zealous. Mormons are zealous. They proclaim and they serve another Jesus, friends. It's another Jesus. Radical Islam, Hasidic Jews, they have incredible zeal, but they lack knowledge. They have passion, they have fervor, they have enthusiasm, but not according to knowledge. Confident zealousness. But confident zealousness must always be measured against its absence of proper knowledge. Always. So zealousness is not in itself the authenticating mark of true, sound, saving belief. Amen. This we must know. Zeal must be in accordance to sound knowledge. It must be in accordance to proper understanding 
There's many religious groups, many zealous people who adhere to man-made doctrine, cultic practice. You know, I I watch this show. I've become kind of um, a little bit addicted to this show because it's so hilarious. And it's entitled, I'm In Search of Bigfoot. (laughs) And uh, they're in search of Sasquatch. And it's a very, very zealous, zealous group of people that is searching for something that does not exist. No remains ever found. Nothing nowhere. Someone asked the question, why don't we ever find skeletal remains of these beasts? He says, well, because they bury their own. Well, how do you know that? Where does that knowledge come from? They are fervent. They are zealous. And I get a kick out of it. And they're maintaining good ratings because of people like me. (laughs) Who don't believe it for a minute. That's not a problem compared to religion and zeal that's not according to knowledge. Sincerity and zealousness when it comes to religion oftentimes seems to trump knowledge. This manner of thinking has infiltrated and infected a great many churches and numerous denominations throughout time. Many believe that as long as you're sincere, if you've probably witnessed to people, you've probably listened to them, hopefully when you witness, you listen, and you know, they, they say as long as you're sincere, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Have you ever heard that? So long as you're seeking God, so long as you're seeking spirituality with diligent sincerity, at the end of the day, God will accept you. Well, Paul has for us a dose of reality, and the answer is no, he will not. Zeal is of no value unless it is directly from the word of God. Properly interpreted. Properly interpreted. So his fundamental charge is that Israel has not understood its own scriptures. And the consequence of which is that they have sought salvation in the wrong way. And in turn, they will go to perdition. Hell. The synagogues were filled with people who thought they were going to heaven but would end up in hell. That's a grave error that is just as important for all who profess Jesus Christ in American churches today. Many value experience over sola scriptura. Amen? Scripture alone, Latin term for scripture alone. Many value experience over sound teaching. We see much of this in the charismatic movement of our day. If you turn on quote-unquote Christian TV, you never see them expositing scripture. They're not given to the scriptures. They claim that God speaks to them. They claim that God gives them prophecies. They, they utter uh, in other 
Babel, known as what they refer to as tongues, uh, they, they say that they receive direct or fresh revelations from God, never according to sola scriptura. They are zealous. They are enthusiastic. What God has said in his word is not enough for them. So they resort to experiential antics birthed out of this kind of zeal. Very dangerous. They're not unlike Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire at the altar. Right? God in previous times sent down fire to consume the sacrifice. On that day, he consumed them. Amen? Dead. And he instructed their father, do not even weep for them. Is God serious about his word? He's dead serious. Dead serious. So this is the first thing that Paul points to in this passage. His people have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Notice verse 3. 4. Being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who what? Believes. There it is again. We'll see by the end of the morning what it means to believe. Now, the righteousness of God, when we, when we read about the righteousness of God in Scripture, it always has a twofold meaning. Number one is God's absolute perfect righteousness. That's number one. He's absolutely holy. Perfect righteousness. Number two is the righteousness of God that is made ours by way of faith. That is by way of believing in him. Let me rephrase that. By believing him. You can believe in him and not believe him. Because the only righteousness that is acceptable to God is perfect, holy righteousness. And you ain't got none in and of yourself. (laughs) The Jews had none in and of themselves, though they thought they did. They were self-deceived. The only perfect righteousness that there is, is his perfect righteousness. Therefore, the only way to be accepted by God is if we are seen having that righteousness, his righteousness, applied, endowed, or employed to us, providing a right standing before him. All of grace and all of righteousness comes from outside of us. It's not worked up from within us. So the problem is that they have failed to subject themselves to God's righteousness. He mentioned this as we looked in chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. The Jewish people of his own time had been seeking to establish their own. Zealously. Making converts that Jesus said were twice as much sons of hell than they were. Presuming a right standing before God through their own attempt at obedience to the law. Good luck. Good luck. Notice verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who what? Believes. There it is again. Believes. What is it to believe? Now, many great scholars 
disagree on exactly what Paul is saying here with regard to, to end and law, the end of the law. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time this morning distinguishing between their views historically. But this is what we know. I think it's very simple. One thing we do know is, is Matthew stresses is that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Number one, amen? He's the fulfillment of the law. Christ is also the goal or objective of the law. In other words, he is what the law anticipated. He is what the law pointed towards. You can think of a race course image. Israel's the runner. The law is the race. Christ is the finish line. Christ is the finish line. And Israel failed to understand that the finish line had been reached, the Messiah and salvation that he alone provides. And they rejected him. They rejected the righteousness of God, trying to create their own. Zealously, without knowledge, without proper knowledge. Now, Jesus also brings an end to the tyranny of the law. Jesus brings an end to the tyranny of the law over them, the tyranny of the law over us. Every person who dies outside of Christ will be judged according to God's holy law. And everyone fails. Everyone's condemned under the law. The only way to be brought out of condemnation is to be found in Christ who fulfilled the law and brought an end to its tyranny. You see, the Pharisees hated Jesus for confronting them. He confronted their sin, and they missed. The reason they hated him was because he confronted them, but what they missed was the one who was the solution for their sin, standing before them. He's the only solution. They didn't understand why he came. They didn't understand who he was and missed the whole intent of his death. Bearing in his own body our sins on the cross, taking the full weight of God's wrath upon him for sinners like you and sinners like me. In Christ, we've been freed from the tyranny and the terror of God's law so that we might live according to the will of God, that is, in the spirit led by him in obedience for the glory of the one who upheld the law. Amen? We actually fulfill the law, as we studied weeks ago, because of the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Zeal, but not according to knowledge. Now, Paul is not saying that once upon a time you were saved by the law, but now that Christ has come, you're not saved by the law. It's always been by grace. It's always been according to faith that looked forward to the Messiah. We live by faith looking back to the Messiah. The centerpiece of time. The fulfillment of all things. The end of the law. The fulfillment of the law, the end of the tyranny of the law, the end of the terror of the law. He's fulfilled it all. Righteousness comes through him and by him alone. They lacked this knowledge. They didn't want this knowledge. The Jews failed to understand God's righteousness because they did not 
recognize God's provision for that righteousness. Jesus. Verse 5. Notice now. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, that is obviously somewhat ambiguous language here. Uh, But after reasoning that righteousness is the only way of faith, and not any attempt at law-keeping will provide a righteous standing before God, he provides an illustration, right? Look at it. These are two larger-than-life impossibilities. This is how impossible it is to find a right standing before God in trying to uphold the law. (laughs) So it serves to amplify the absurdity of such an attempt. That is, number one, it is just as ridiculous to think that you can be justified by your own virtue or your own works as it would be for an individual to think that they can ascend to heaven and bring Jesus down. And if that's not enough, it is even more absurd to think like this. It's evenly absurd to think that you can descend into the the pit of death, the abyss, and bring Jesus up from the dead. Two impossibilities. And if you think that you can live a life where your good outweighs your bad, and then when you die, because it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment, that you can stand there and say, you see, Lord, I've done good enough. You're this much of a fool. Point being, God alone sent his son down in bodily form once, to bear the weight of the law upon himself, becoming a curse, becoming sin, having never sinned. Before that, he lived a perfect holy life. So it takes the perfect holy life of Christ in the sinner's place as well as his death in your place to save you, not merely his death. God sent him down and God raised him up. Now, in stark contrast to that impossibility, he proceeds to ask a question. Verse 8. What does it say? Okay, what does scripture say? Notice, the word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we what? That we proclaim. This is the truth the apostle proclaimed. This is the truth all the apostles proclaimed. Meaning, all that he has been proclaiming with regard to justification by faith alone, all throughout this epistle. This is the central truth that is so foundational, so base, so vital, so necessary, so imperative, it's so simple, it's so straightforward, it's so easy to understand, you don't need a PhD in theology to get it. That's what he's saying. It's that near you. If it were a snake, it would bite you. See, the gospel is not some cryptic, mystical message, amen? is very clear. That's the blessing of God's grace. He makes it so clear. Now, Paul has been testifying about this great truth of justification through, by faith all throughout this gospel or epistle. Romans 1, verse 17. They're, they're listed for you, but I'm not going to read through them. Romans 3, verse 24. Romans 3, verse 28. 
Romans 4, verse 3. Romans 5, verse 1. Romans 9, verse 30. Over and over again. And he says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Which is a Hebrew idiom. It means it's right here within your reach. It's not hard to recognize. It's not hard to comprehend. This is proper knowledge. And if your zeal is not burst out of that, you're missing it all. It's so clear, so attainable. So the Jews already had the message of faith through the scriptures. He cites Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 30. That's what was read this morning. And had they pursued the law of righteousness by faith like Abraham did, it would have resulted in righteousness of faith. You see, beloved, righteousness by faith results in righteous character. It's like going into a house. Grace is the doorstep. Jesus is the house. He provides the righteousness. Grace is the entryway. You enter into the house, you're one with the Savior. His righteousness is your righteousness. As you go out the back door, righteous character is produced through those who are in Christ. The Pharisees tried to enter in the back door. Righteous characters who thought they could stand in the presence of the Holy One. They were masquerading as righteous characters. So we need to be saved not only from our sin, but also from our own self-perceived, self-administered righteousness. I know someone who is so quick to tell me, unbeliever, quick to tell me all of the deeds that they do. It's quite sickening. Like this person goes out of their way. And I ask this person regularly, do you think that will get you to heaven? Are you going to heaven when you die? I hope so. I said, that's a false sense of hope. And I pray that God will... Give this person proper knowledge. Because this is zealousness without knowledge, without proper knowledge. They're trying to work their way in. They'll never get there. This is what the Jews were trying to do. You cannot convince people that they need the righteousness of Christ unless they know their own righteousness is inadequate because they have none. The Jews didn't realize this because of their pride. So the message is always a message of sin, judgment, and inadequacy before it's a message of grace, hope, and salvation. Amen? Always. The law first. Your inadequacy second. Third, Christ, the hope. The solution to the problem. Christ's righteousness alone. It's his righteousness alone that causes us to be accepted by God. And Christ's work is to save us from our own righteousness because our own righteousness in his eyes are nothing but what? Filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. Now notice verse 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So here Paul enjoins two elements 
One, professing faith. The second, belief in the heart. He doesn't simply say, confess with your lips, Jesus is Lord. He doesn't say, say this. He doesn't say, repeat this after me. No one is justified by merely confessing the name and the lordship of Jesus Christ with their lips. Howard Stern has done that. You believe he's a Christian because he says so? I hardly think so. How can you mock him with the same words that you confess him with? Because he knows that Christians say, if you just say with your lips you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He goes, okay, I believe it. And I confess him, so I'm saved. Right, Christian? We don't sit there like that, amen? No. Profession of faith, void of possession of faith, doesn't save. That is to be possessed by the Holy Spirit who provides the faith, to believe. Amen? There is an abundance of evangelical zeal in proclaiming the gospel and persuading people to believe. I want to persuade people to believe, no doubt about it. But the danger of a certain kind of zeal is that many attempt or try to get ahead of the Holy Spirit where in turn they use certain methods, certain forms to emotionally charge people up which become very manipulative and then they say now just say this or repeat this and then these poor folks go on thinking that they believe because they said this or they did this. That can be very misleading. A profession of lips alone alone doesn't justify the sinner before God. You must be born what? Again. You must be born from above. Faith birthed in you from God alone. And you have nothing to do with that. Nothing. We just see the fruit of that. It's trust. Trust. Now, having faith or being gifted to believe is what it is to be justified. That is to be declared free from all blame, standing before God. So what then is this faith that one must have in order to be justified? Remember that forensic declaration. That's what justification is. It's God who says you're declared free. You're innocent. Justification. Two aspects that we're going to look at this morning in our our time that we have together. Now, faith is used in a great number of ways in Scripture, But faith is used in a great number of ways by people who are religiously empty. I've heard people say in the midst of trouble, maybe a kind of illness, they say, well, at least I have a lot of faith, right? I said, are you okay? And these are, at the end of the day, you realize they're not believers. Well, I just have a lot of faith. Often often meaning, you know, I'm not all that worried, but I'm, I'm entering into this dilemma with confidence that I have faith. And when you listen to them, well, what do you mean? They have faith in faith. Faith in faith doesn't save. In Scripture, that is not what faith is. That is not what faith means. In verse 10, we read, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you'll be saved. Having faith in God that saves isn't to believe about him, isn't to believe in Jesus, but means to believe him. To believe him. Having faith in Jesus Christ is to believe who he is, what he's done, believing his promises, and believing his warnings which are promises. 
Now I submit to you that we do not understand faith if we think all it means is to believe in the sense of just simply accept this as true. Right? Certain things concerning Jesus. Listen to 2 Timothy 3. Understand this. In the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households, capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. A form. A form of godliness. It's patently true, beloved, that people may believe all the truth about God, and when they die, go straight to perdition. Why do I believe that? Because scripture is patently clear that even demons believe and hell was created for them. James 2. You believe that God is one? You do what? You do well. Even the demons believe. And what? They shudder. They shudder. Satan and his demons, beloved, are orthodox theologians. Did you know that? But intellectual assent to data does not save. It's been said, Satan is the world's most orthodox Calvinistic theologian. He knows God's character. He knows Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He knows what Jesus has done. He knows who Jesus is. He knows most firmly what all of God's attributes are. He knows what they all mean. He has no doubts in the matter with regard to God and his redeeming work. No doubts whatsoever. He believes it. The devil believes and has confidence in the word of God more than even most Christians do, more than most of us do. With certainty, he believes it. He believes that God's word is unequivocally sure, it is certain, it is true, and it's probably the reason they tremble. Because he knows it's true. He knows that God has declared his own doom in the lake of fire. That hell was created for him and his, fo- his followers. Because those who are not in Christ, who's their father? The devil. Jesus said to the Pharisees. Satan knows that God does not make a promise that he does not keep. This he knows. Satan's belief is the cause of this trembling. But this belief is not the cause of him going to heaven. He believes all the truth about God, and he's not going to heaven. Now, if that be true, can many people sit in churches, know the truth about God, believe the truth about God, and enter into perdition right alongside of Satan, who also believes like this? Can they? 
Jesus said they will. Many will say, Lord, Lord, and all that. So it's not simply believing who God is, or in believing in the truth of salvation, or understanding how particular doctrines work together. It's not about simply believing what Jesus has done, who he is, that is, believing in his work and believing in his worth, the data, or any other aspect of reformed apostolic doctrine for that matter. Believing sound doctrine doesn't save a person. Being able to banter over sound doctrine and orthodox theology doesn't save a person. Believing in or about the doctrine of justification by faith alone doesn't save a person. And here's a very important key. There is no justification without regeneration. Where there's justification, there's regeneration. Where there's regeneration, there's justification. He must be born again. And regeneration means the, the creation of a new nature provided by God. It's a gift of God. If there's no evidence of new life, there's no new life. And if there's no new life, that person is not a Christian regardless of what they say with their mouth. This isn't to say we don't continue to sin because we all do. This we know. Hopefully we know this. Just live life, amen? Breathe air and you know you still sin. (laughs) That's not the matter at hand. It's about believing. It's about believing. What does it mean to believe? Satan believes. But he's going to hell. And hell has no remedial effect whatsoever. In other words, those who go to hell, their hell is not corrective. It, It doesn't reform anyone's thinking. Those who go to hell and hate God continue to hate God forever and ever. Along with those who believe the data like Satan. No remedial effect. No change takes place in perdition. Now, is it essential that we have correct beliefs, beloved? Amen, yes. Is it essential that that correct doctrine is proclaimed? Absolutely. But regardless of how long someone sits in their personalized pew, involved in, in service and teaching and ministry, mere verbal profession to the data doesn't save. This is what the Jews were victims of. You see this, beloved? The most religious people in the world, full of zeal, did not believe. Your faith is a gift. Believing him is a gift. He says... If you believe in your heart, you confess with your lips, you believe in your heart, Christ raised from the dead, you will be saved. How do we deal with someone who professes to be a Christian and doesn't believe in the resurrection? Have you ever met a, someone who proclaims to, be, proclaims to be a Christian? They don't believe in the resurrection. I have. How do you deal with them? Is someone who's lost. How do we deal with someone who says, you know, I I believe in Jesus. I believe in all the good he did. I believe he went to the cross. I believe he died. I I believe in he rose from the dead. But I have a, a hard time believing that he was deity. 
treat him as an unbeliever. Either they're really messed up in their thinking or they don't believe because without his deity, he could not atone for your sin. Impossible. Without his deity, he could not have raised from the grave. If you don't believe Jesus raised from the dead, you believe another Jesus. And he doesn't save. See, Paul says this is the Jesus about whom Scripture testifies. He's divine. What about people who say, you know, one religious system is just as good as another? Please, if you love them, direct them away from that faulty thinking. They're very, but they're very sincere. Show them that they're sincerely lost, friends. Sincerely lost. True faith, true belief, is truly trusting yourself to him alone. I believe him. I believe in his work. I believe in his worth. I believe he's the only way. I know there's nothing I can do. It's not Jesus plus. It's Christ alone. That's what it is to believe. When you believe that here, it comes out of here. It's trust. Entrusting yourself fully and completely to him. That's faith alone. Saved through Christ alone, nothing else. It's, it's, it's him alone and no other thing. It's him alone and no other act, no other practice, no denomination, no citation. It's not him in the Lord's table. It's not him in baptism. It's him alone. Baptism in the Lord's table points to him who is salvation alone. They point to him. They don't add to him. It's him alone and no other person. It's not Christ and Mary. It's not Christ and a priest. It's not Christ and any pastor. It's not Christ, kids, kids. It's not Christ and your parents. It's Jesus alone entrusting yourself completely to him by faith that he lived the life in your place that God requires. He died in your place for which God requires in his justice, death, punishment for sin. The consequence of sin is you cast yourself upon his mercy. That's what it is to believe. You proclaim that truth with your mouth. You're saved. That's salvation. Because we're utterly and truly saved when we, when we put all of our faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ alone. That's what it is to believe. That's his person and his passion. What was his passion? Calvary. He set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem for you. His work and his worth, his life and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, he rules and he reigns. I have entrusted myself because of the faith he's given me in regeneration to depend on him and him alone. That's what it is to believe. Glory, glory. We come here to worship. We come here to pray. We come here to praise him. We come to the Lord's table believing this and trusting ourselves to him alone. That's what it is to believe. Who he is and what he's done. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, verse nine. Has to do not with mere words and belief of facts, but is talking about absolute dependence.
dependent. Amen? Are you fully dependent upon him for your salvation? If you're fully dependent upon Christ, that he was God, that he was man, that he literally died prior to dying, lived the perfect life, holy life because he was God, and he raised from the grave, you believe that? The Bible says that's what it is to believe. It's trusting, confessing that truth. You're saved. I acknowledge outwardly that which I believe inwardly. Whether a man looks at me consistently from the outside or God looks at me from the inside, ultimately the same thing is revealed. That is, all my hope and all my trust is in Jesus alone. I add nothing, nothing at all. That's grace. That's salvation. In him we rejoice. May God in his grace grant us this confidence faith in Christ alone as we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ alone. Amen? Perhaps you're here this morning and this is news to you. I praise God that you're here by his divine providence. You must be the recipient of his grace. If you're not... And you're here this morning. You can exchange what God calls the filthy rags of your own righteousness, of your own attempt of gaining his favor. You can't gain his favor. There's nothing you can do to be saved. Nothing. It's all according to his grace. You can exchange your filthy garments for pure and holy garments, and that is the righteous garments of Jesus Christ in your place provided through his gospel which means good news. At present, you stand in the land of the lost. You are dead in your trespasses. You are dead in your sins. But God comes to you now in your time of need, revealing this glorious eternal truth to your heart, confronting you with his accomplished work at the cross. That's what you're being confronted with this morning. You're you're standing before the righteousness of God and he bids you to come unto him and believe him. And if you confess, that is to admit that you're lost, that you're under the curse of God's law, that you cannot in any way perform what he requires and that is an absolutely perfect holy life. You can't do it. You've already failed. You were conceived in failure. You accept his verdict about your sin. You admit your lost condition and he will show you that he is absolutely satisfied in the death of his son in your place and the life of his son in your place and you will pass through death and into life through the cross of Jesus Christ forgiven and beloved and declared righteous. And he clothes you in the garments of his righteousness. You must entrust yourself completely to him. And you must repent of thinking that you can do it. And you must repent of thinking that it's him plus you. And you be saved. Come to him today. If that's you. Christians, rest in this. Have confidence in this. 
You came in here an unbeliever. I pray to God that you leave here a believer, born again of the Spirit, as the Holy Spirit descends upon your soul and gives you life. Father, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for your kindness. We praise you for the law. The goodness of the law, which reveals our sinful condition. As Paul said, I would not have known what it is to covet, unless the law had not said, thou shall not covet. We thank you that the law points us to Christ, our schoolmaster leading us to Christ, the one who upheld the law. I pray, Lord, for Christians this morning to be strengthened in this truth. That our zealousness would be the product of sound knowledge according to sola scriptura, according to scripture alone. For any who walked in here, Lord, perhaps thinking that they were in, realizing today by the work of your spirit that they didn't truly believe, I pray that today is the day that they believe that they're given the gift of faith to believe and entrust themselves fully and completely to you so that they have the confidence and the insurance of divine salvific grace. Bless your people. Renew our hope in glory. Strengthen us in this confidence where we are weak, where we are swayed, that our confidence is not in us, completely in Christ alone. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.